okay? This group smile now. Good job. One, two, three. Yeah, I'll wave. I'll take it. It's a snapshot, right? It's a picture that captures a moment, right? Behind every snapshot, there's a story. I got on my Facebook page this week and got some pictures for you guys to look at. Here's the first one. Um, so the story behind this is um, I love dancing, and if you get me at a wedding and the right music, I can't stop myself, okay? Um, that move is called the Carlton, if you're wanting to know. Uh, go to the next one. Um, that's, uh, the story behind this one is uh, I was in a small group of guys who wanted to get physically fit, so we decided to have a goal of running a 5K together. We ran See Bob's Run uh, 5K in October, and uh, you had to dress up in costumes. So we dressed up as a Channel News 5 team. And so uh, uh, that's us in suits running a 5K, and that guy in the middle there is your executive pastor, Paul Lingi. okay? Let's go to the next picture, please. Okay, this is me um, uh, speaking at my college graduation. My wife and I knew that I was gonna be speaking, so we decided to get you know, a nice new haircut for um, that moment, and we were poor college students. So we went to the beauty school to get my haircut. I said, you know, I want, it half, I want three quarters of an inch you know, in length, and they took off three quarters of an inch right down the middle. You see that landing strip there? And that was on the big jumbotron in front of all the family, friends, and faculty. So that was a good one. Also in like the, the magazine that goes out to everybody. So go ahead to the next one. This is the last picture. Um, that's me bald in high school. I thought I could pull this look off and I was wrong. <laughs> so that's the story behind that one. So every snapshot has a story and you can take that picture down. Thank you, good, okay, good. Every snapshot has a story. This is what they call photojournalism. The whole point is to use specific snapshots and arrange them in such a way that the photo album tells the story of the event. We've been doing just that in this sermon series called Snapshots. We've looked at these different pictures of Jesus' life, Jesus and his family, Jesus as an infant, Jesus as a child, and Jesus as a man. We've been arranging them to tell the story of Jesus. And to conclude, the last page of our photo album, the last installment of pictures uploaded on Facebook, the last time that Jesus is tagged in an Instagram photo or a Snapchat is when we see Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's scribed in Revelation 1 as follows. And when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. This is not the picture of Jesus I grew up with. I'll tell you that. This is the picture of Jesus I grew up with, right? 
Jesus in a flowing robe, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, German-looking Jesus with a nicely trimmed beard and hair to compete with Pastor Ken. Isn't that nice right there? But this is not the Photoshop of Jesus we get in, in uh, Revelation 1. In Revelation 1, Jesus is not calmly standing outside a door, but he is triumphantly displayed among seven golden lampstands with a long royal robe with a golden sash around his chest, white hair instead of blonde. When those blue eyes should be, his are blazing like fire. His feet weren't in brown sandals, but were a glowing bronze being lit by a fire. When he spoke, it sounded like Niagara Falls, and in his right hand, he was juggling stars from the sky as he pulled out a double-edged sword from his mouth. And then there was his face. I used to stand in our church lobby and stare at that serene face of Jesus. Yet when we look into his face here in Revelation, we shield our eyes because it's shining like the sun in all its brilliance. This is not the snapshot of Jesus I grew up with. Yet in every snapshot, there's a story And did you catch the story in John's picture of Jesus? It came in verse 13. It says this, And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. That's it. That's son of man. That's the divine title. The allusion to Daniel chapter 7, the scene of this son of man, this manly person, this individual, ascending into heaven and sitting on the throne of the ancient of days, ruling over his kingdom that spans all the known and unknown galaxies of the universe. Here is the story that this snapshot is telling. Jesus is king. Jesus is king. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is majesty. He is royalty. He is God. He is ruler. He is creator, redeemer, sustainer, judge, legislator, and supreme ruler. Jesus is king. Do you see him? Do you see him as king? Because this was their problem These churches, you see, had too small a view of Jesus. John knew this because they had small faith. You see, friends, the largeness of our faith is in direct proportion to the largeness of our view of Jesus. Small Jesus, small faith. Big Jesus, big faith. The churches were under persecution and seduction. They were facing the most evil emperor of the known world since Nero. They were facing an overwhelming amount of pressure from the outside world, pressure to give in to sexual temptation, pressure to compromise beliefs and lifestyle, pressure to worship material possessions and the luxuries of the richest nation on earth. And in the midst of all of this, their faith, their faith was wavering. They wanted just enough of God to make it through the day to survive, to keep their heads down until Jesus came again. Too often we fall into the same trap. We want just enough of Jesus to get by, to feel good, to make it to heaven. We get in our holy huddles and complain about the world outside of us. We spend breakfast at Cracker Barrel worrying about the future, hoping Jesus comes back or we die before things go down the pipe. We live our Christian lives in bunkers, hunkered down, waiting to go to heaven. And we find out that we have a small faith because we have a small view of God. Wilbur Rees describes this attitude as follows. I would like to buy 
$3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Because of this, John's desire is to grow these Christians' faith. And the only way to do that is to give them a bigger snapshot of Jesus. He wants them to throw away the school pics of Jesus they have in their wallets in exchange for a vision that remains burned in their brains. So he gives them a revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The revelation from Jesus Christ. That word revelation is a Greek word, apocalypsis. It literally means to pull back the veil. We've seen behind, we've seen what's behind curtains one and two. Curtain one, God created this world. And in curtain two, he entered this world as a baby, died on a cross as a man, and resurrected from the dead as God. Now John is pulling back curtain number three. He's showing us that Jesus is reigning on his throne as the Son of Man, as the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. He's fixing their view of Jesus to give them greater faith, to be the people he needs them to be for that lost and hurting world. And he's doing the same for us. He gives us a snapshot that shows Jesus is King. Do you see him? Do you see him as King? Because immediately following this snapshot of Jesus as king comes two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3, written to seven different churches. What we find in these letters is that these churches, they were messed up. They had forgotten their first love. They had become legalistic rule followers. They had bought into false teaching. They had gotten caught up in sexual immorality and idol worship. They had no need for God. They had no faith. This was the church This was the body of Christ, the manifestation of God's kingdom on earth, the bride of Christ. Have you you met her? Have you met this kind of bride of Christ? She wasn't perfect. She was broken, battered, and bruised. Have you met her? She'd been fooled by the false teachings of the day. Have you met her? She was a hypocrite, teaching purity, yet committing adultery. Have you met her? She was commanded to offer love, but got obsessed with distributing hate. Have you met her? I know that in this room today are a number of you who have been hurt by God's bride called the church. I remember the first time that uh, I was burned by the church. It was the time I found out that an anonymous letter had been written to the pastor at my home church condemning my family and its involvement in leadership at our church. I watched as my grandfather carried a copy of that letter around his breast pocket for months, like a festering wound becoming more and more infected each and every day. This was when my disillusionment was broken and the harsh reality of Christian community hit me square in the face. This was when I realized that Jesus' bride was someone else's mistress, that she wasn't perfect but was loved and forgiven. This was also when I fell in love with the church. You see, the worst thing about Christianity are Christians, the people, right? 
Jesus is awesome. His teachings are to die for, literally. Yet it's the Christians that ruin everything. They mess up speaking the truth in love. They end up getting divorced. They get caught up in tradition and they cease to be relevant. They huddle in their holy bunkers and withdraw from society. If it weren't for all those Christians, I'd become one. At the very same time that the worst thing about Christianity is the Christians. The best thing about Christianity are the Christians. Words on a page do not wrap arms around me when I've lost a loved one. Philosophical truths do not offer forgiveness to me when I failed yet again. Isolation from people has never spurred on a spontaneous collection of money to pay for a friend's medical bills. What is interesting is that directly following this earthly entity called the church comes another snapshot of Jesus as king. It comes to us in Revelation 4, verse 2. At once I, John, was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne, and in heaven with someone sitting on it. The picture, the snapshot we get of this son of man is as king on a throne. 24 elders, the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament fall down and worship him. And then the four living creatures, the the representation of all of creation, fall down and worship him. This is the king of the universe. What is great is that this king, this ruler, this Lord of all is in the churches. Revelation 1 says he is among the lampstands, which stand for the churches. You see, friends, the church was never meant to be a perfect utopia with no sin. The church is meant to be a place where when we sin, we encounter the love and grace and forgiveness that only comes through Jesus Christ. Friends, when the church burns you, do you see him? When the bride of Christ falls short, do you see her husband on the throne? When the body of Christ cuts you deep, do you see the cross and forgiveness of the victorious king? When the church burns you, do you see him? Then after this glorious scene in the throne room comes four horses. These horses bring with them war, famine, injustice, and death. They bring about persecution, suffering, and tribulation. They bring about the kingdoms of this world falling to their demise. Yeah, the church is messed up. But Revelation 6 through 10 shows us that this world is pretty messed up too. I'll never forget that Tuesday morning when um, our teacher ran in and turned the TV on to see smoke rising from that first tower over New York City. My perfect little bubble was burst. And I realized as I watched that second plane fly directly into that second tower on live television that our world was truly jacked up. I mean, who would do such a thing? And are we safe? I mean, could that happen here? And why all the hate? My mentor told me that in one year, his father left him and his mom His pastor slept with the secretary and resigned, and his president was impeached because of Watergate. One year, and every single one of his authority figures in his life were shattered. 
It happened to our history too. In the 1800s was the Industrial Revolution. We had overthrown the shackles of religiosity and mysticism in exchange for empiricism and science. We were establishing a new world. We were building it from the ground up. Transportation that could take us from one side of the continent to the other in the span of a week. Industry that could provide luxuries that you wouldn't believe and science that could build the greatest structures of all time. We were building a better world. And then one assassination led to two world wars. Our technological advances turned against us, killing 38 million in the first world war and over 60 million in the second, around 3% of the population at that time. Genocide, the Great Depression, extreme poverty and war broke the spirit of the age. The world had failed us. And the question in Revelation 6 that is asked by those who had bought into the story of the world, the hope of the world, the progress of society, cried out in the midst of despair, who can stand? Who can stand? Who can endure the troubles of our time? Who can endure a divided country? Who can understand hundreds of thousands of refugees fleeing their native lands? Who can stand war and economic uncertainty and sexual immorality and those living in luxury at the expense of those in poverty? Who can stand? Then comes a vision, a picture, a snapshot. In Revelation 7, John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen! Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You see, friends, when the church burns you and the world fails you, do you see him? Do you see the King of kings and Lord of lords reigning even when the kingdoms of this world are falling apart? Do you see your master, King Jesus, holding you up on your feet even when the world continues to push you down? When you feel your faith faltering and your faith continues to get smaller and smaller, do you see your larger-than-life king sitting on his throne. When the world fails you, do you see him? Do you see him? Then in chapter 12, 12, the veil is pulled back to reveal who is behind all of this mess in the church and in the world. Then another sign appeared in heaven an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. And church, I must ask you, 
Who are they? Those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Who are they? Those that the dragon is enraged at. Gulp. <laughs> right? They're us. We have a real enemy, and he is after us. I love the story of the hobbit. It's described as follows. It's a story of a little fellow named Bilbo Baggins who helps a remnant of dwarves reclaim their mountain home. The only problem, a deadly dragon named Smog now inhabits the mountain, so they must not blithely walk back into their old home unawares. As Tolkien writes, it does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. Friends, we live near the dragon. We have an enormous dragon after us, and whether he tries to get you into the electric chair to kill you or the easy chair to marginalize you, you better believe that he is after you. Do you feel the breath of the dragon? Do you feel his seductive whispers crawling over your shoulder into your ear? Do you feel the heat of his breath in the midst of persecution? Do you feel the breath of the dragon in your life? The dragon is attacking the church and the world. More Christians have been killed for their faith in the last hundred years than the previous 19 centuries combined. The value of tolerance in our society has created a seductive lie that promotes complete acceptance, no matter race, gender, or sin, yet perverts that truth with a false ideology that says love is allowing you to remain in sin, to remain in a lifestyle that God reveals as damaging to you and those around you. That is literally living in a hell on earth. The enemy behind hypocrisy in the church and tolerance in the world, the hate behind every war in the boardroom and every war in the newsroom, this hell on earth reality we are living in is all the result of the breath of the dragon. Do you feel it? You know, I love the last half of the book of Revelation. It's one large literary unit where the evil forces behind the church that had burned us and the world that had failed us are introduced and destroyed. Revelation 12 through 14 introduces the enemies attacking these Christians in Asia Minor. Yet Revelation 17 through 20 reveals the destruction of these enemies. God is setting all things right. Jesus is coming back, my friends. He's reigning over his kingdom, and the just judge is coming again to completely destroy our enemy, to bring the transaction to completion, the V-Day after our D-Day, and he is going to make all things new. For John, he gives us his church a vision, a picture, a snapshot of the ultimate reality that is coming. Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. 
Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When the enemy attacks you, church, do you see him? When you feel the breath of the dragon, his seductive whisper, his fires of death and destruction, do you see the King of Kings and Lord of Lords riding on his steed with a sword coming out of his mouth to slay a dragon and bring heaven on earth? Do you stand with the angels that appeared to the shepherds and sing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth on whom his favor rests? Do you accompany three kings from the east and offer gifts to a baby in a manger? Do you proclaim with Thomas at the sight of the risen Lord, my Lord and my God? And do you stand with the, uh, and do you sing with all the heavenly hosts, hallelujah, for our Lord God almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Friends, every snapshot tells a story. So when the church burns you, and the world fails you, and the enemy attacks you, do you see him? 